from training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. My name is Dakota Herman, and today we're going to be highlighting our best shows of 2021. Before we dive into it, though, let's hear a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. Most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant. Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. What's up, you guys? Thank you for joining us for this exclusive episode of the Elite Baseball Development Podcast. As I mentioned, today we're going to be highlighting and showcasing our best episodes of 2021. So without further ado, at number five, episode 103, Should Pitchers Take Time Off From Throwing? In episode 103, Eric touches on why athletes should consider taking time away from throwing during the offseason, who is a candidate for year-round throwing programs, and what are the key considerations when implementing year-round throwing protocols? So really, it comes down to feel. Um, you know, the ability to, to make changes, whether it's in pitch design, uh, reshaping an arm path or adjusting your delivery. And then third, you know, avoiding soreness. Those are the three rationales, uh, you know, for continuing to throw. Um, this clearly isn't as long a list, but I don't think that makes it any less compelling um, because for some athletes, this has clearly been, you know, career changing. So I think above all else, we really need to put our, you know, our 
pen to paper and, and really do some thinking on how to do it safely and correctly. We need to make sure that we think it through and we actually plan it out meticulously so that we don't deviate and say, all right, I'm just going to play catch at 60 feet. And then before you know it, in week two, you're airing it out to 300 feet with your long toss. So there is a right and a wrong way to do it. And here are some of the things that I think are important for us to consider. First, the intensity has to be kept down in the early stages. And I'd argue that this timeline is probably about eight weeks. So in a normal you know, off season, our minor league baseball players are typically gonna wrap up in the first couple weeks of September. Um, here in 2021, it's a little bit different just because the season gets started a little bit later and playoffs are pushed back. But um, you know, historically speaking, if guys are gonna just continue to throw during that down period, I think it's playing catch at 60 to 75 feet, three days a week you know, for that first eight weeks or so not really any weighted ball stuff. It's just you know manipulating a five ounce baseball, being comfortable, staying familiar with the seams. Um, I will say historically, we have tons of guys that do like to throw the football around this time. So they're probably making the same number of throws, but a lot of times they're running routes with their buddies and just moving around. And you know it's something that kind of keeps them athletic. Um, a lot of guys feel like the football does help them to, to keep their arm path where it needs to be. So that's one way to kind of keep the arm moving without unyielding specificity. Um, the second point I would make is that short shutdowns are traditionally um, useless and, and likely harmful. Um, the reason, very simply, is that everyone ramps up too quickly after these down periods. There's, there's basically a sudden reduction in chronic workload and then a substantial jump in acute workload thereafter. And this is, as we know in the baseball world, and, and Tim Gabbett, Gabbett has some great research on this, um, it's a recipe for disaster. Um, for being honest, the college baseball world is the most guilty of this as it's kind of a, a competitive year that's riddled with weeks off here and there that probably don't do much to allow for actual rest, recovery, regeneration, but do put athletes at increased risk when the season starts. You know, what do we see? We see guys that throw all the way till, you know, early August in summer ball and they take three weeks off and they ramp right back up for fall ball. You know, we see a scenario where some pitchers are shut down for like two weeks during final exams and then they ramp right back up. So um, I traditionally like to find more, you know, sustained periods of downtime if we're going to do it at all. If not, we're better off just keeping pitchers playing catch lightly during those periods. Um, third point I would say is remember that most kids are terrible evaluators of intensity of throwing. Um, I think I recall a, a quote from Kevin Wilk way back in the day where he said, you know, teenagers only know one speed and that's stupidity. Um, and, it, you know, he meant it, you know, in a very you know joking way. But, you know, there is a fair amount of truth to that is, you know, there's research that shows that if you if you look at pitchers, they tend to throw harder than they think they're throwing. Um, so if you ask them to throw at 80 percent effort, they're probably going to throw over 90 percent effort. Um, so keep the athlete mindset in mind when you prescribe continued throwing. My experience has been that professional athletes have a very good feel for this. College athletes, slightly less so, and high school athletes, almost no feel for it. So I'd be very reluctant to push kids um, who are still skeletally mature, still learning how their body works, um, you know, who have the opportunity to play multiple sports and benefit in different ways, and also ones that you know, really haven't made the most of their strength conditioning experiences yet. You know, most 16, 17, 18 year old kids still need to get stronger. And, you know, the more they throw, the, the harder it is. There's more competing demands, you know, to really, um, you know, interfere with that if you're continuing to throw. And then I, a fourth point is I think if you, if you think your 12 year old needs to throw year round to develop, you're crazy. And there are going to be people that are thinking that that's the case. And it's, it's just not true. When baseball season ends, um, that kid needs to get involved in soccer, football, street hockey, some other sport, whatever it is. Um, I think variety is essential at that age. 
as you need to build a broad foundation of motor strategies upon which you can layer more specific skill work later on. Um, most kids will still get some accidental throwing in at that age just by messing around with their buddies and recreational activities, whether it's you know, you know, just playing catch in the backyard, playing wiffle ball, you know, obviously throwing the football around, stuff like that. But the lack of, of downtime from throwing is especially problematic in younger populations because they are skeletally mature and they are weaker, right? So you, if you push them harder, they're more likely to wind up with growth plate injuries or, you know, more significant stuff that, that, that sticks around for an extended period of time. So this is a conversation that we should never be having with 12-year-olds. This is something that, you know, we probably need to start considering when we have kids who are, you know, 16, 17, 18, and, and obviously into college and professional sports. And then a fifth, you know, last but not least factor is, is the psychological component. Um, a lot of baseball players are completely over baseball by the time the offseason rolls around. You know, I think this is particularly true if they played for a team that wasn't in a playoff race, you know, and, and obviously they were you know, in the dog days of summer as it wound down, you know, or if they played for a coach that wore them out and took the fun away from the game, um, you know, and certainly guys who pitch career high in innings. I know the number of guys I've seen who have hit like 180 innings for the first time in professional baseball, they're, they're largely hanging and just not even interested in going anywhere near a baseball when the season wraps up. Um, and, and forcing them to continue to throw is a quick way to make them really apathetic to, you know, not just baseball, but also your coaching. You know, if you need any proof, ask any minor leaguer how he feels about, you know, being sent to instructs after 150 innings or something like that. Um, you know, I think historically a lot of, you know, necessary work can certainly happen there, but that doesn't mean that guys necessarily enjoy it. It's why you see more and more teams getting away from this idea of a traditional instructs and instead letting guys start their off season and then doing more camps throughout the off season as check-ins. Um, it's just a way to, to keep people passionate about baseball without wearing them out when they've been on the road for an extended period of time and they're, they're maybe a little bit banged up. So, um, you know, these are just five things that I think are really, really important for us to, you know, to certainly appreciate. Next up in our best of 2021 countdown, we have number four, episode 96, developing pre and post throwing routines with Tanner Allen. In episode 96, Tanner talks the most common mistakes players make during pre and post throwing routines, strategies for optimizing preparation for throwing sessions and ways to improve recovery once done. Let's, let's talk about the pre-throwing period first. So when you when you have athletes that come in to see you, whether they're, you know, post-op Tommy Johns or they're, you know, labor repairs or, you know, anything, you know, in the middle there, um, you know, what are the biggest mistakes that you're seeing with, you know, athletes of all ages, whether we're talking about 12-year-olds or whether we're talking about big leaguers that are coming your way with, with arm issues, stress fracturing their backs, whatever it may be when it comes to the pre-throwing routine? Yeah, that's uh, a great question and one that I have commonly thought about in my new role at physical, as a physical therapist at Diamond Physical Therapy within CSP. So I think it's important, first off, that you know have an understanding of what pre-throwing would be. Uh, throwing is such a dynamic and forceful movement that you want to put yourself in a position to succeed before you start throwing. So for uh common like pop-up mistakes that i would you know regularly see that i think that i would like to talk about would be one is lack of time management uh you have guys that don't plan ahead accordingly or appropriately you know typically i like to recommend at least seven to ten minutes minimum but that can range anywhere close to 30 minutes plus uh, for some individuals you know over time working with guys on the rehab side we will modify this to fit what they feel is good for them without it being overbearing. On the other hand, like you mentioned, you have various age groups, younger athletes, 
where warmups are a burden and it takes time for them to, you know, buy in and have pride in the warmup. And unfortunately, you know, I typically, if I'm seeing, you know, those types of patient post-injury, they tend to listen a little earlier, which is a trend that I want to change and hope this podcast assists in doing so. Secondly, uh, would be an inappropriate exercise for that individual. Uh, you know, I see this every day where high school athletes trying to use heavy J bands compared to, you know, using this simpler version of a junior J band, or they come in with overly complicated warmups that, you know, are potentially seen on social media. Um, following along with that, you think about how high school warmups and things are structured with team circles even, you know, college and professional practice, practices consisting of arm circles, toe touches, haphazardly done J-band movements, light sprints, and, you know, voila, they're, you know, ready to throw. Uh, none of this, you know, takes into account the different body types or anything, you know, benefit or the benefit of the doubt, though, to, you know, the circular type warmups is there needs to be the camaraderie that comes with these environments. But, you know, even if we could just get you know, the pitchers that have individualized routine is a great start. Um, and then the third common mistake would potentially be the ordering of warmups. So you have guys that are jumping around from dynamic warmups uh, to stretching to plyo balls, then going back to self myofascial release, and then zero, and that has absolutely zero structure. So that also could fit in a little bit with the inappropriate exercise domain, but it comes down to lack of, lack of knowledge on the individual's part. Uh, something I love about CSP and the work that you have done and the coaches do is the great stepwise progression and warm up for strength training. I like to use that kind of mindset. Same thing for pre-throwing. And I'd say 80% of the cases I see that involve throwing one of the first things I have to do is address the warm-up in some capacity, in particularly the ordering. Turning like the focus a little bit uh, to common mistake number four is turning the warm-up into a workout, whereas the desired result of pre-throwing is going to be activation of targeted muscles, not a set of external rotation exercises to failure or burnout before you're going out and throw. That leaves you in a state of being you know, gassed or low on energy tank before the, you know, event of throwing even starts. I think, you know, one, one thing that's a, a really good line to throw in here, it's, a, it's actually a line from Tim Grover who, you know, trained Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade. He had a line in one of his books where he said, don't wait around for someone to teach you something that you already know. Right. So we all know warming up is important, so, you know, when, when you talk about, you know, young athletes, you're like, oh, I'll do anything to throw harder. I'll do anything to get better. You know, really the, the number one thing you can do to, to get better at baseball, to throw baseballs harder, et cetera, et cetera, is, is to have continuity in your training, to stay healthy um, and to make sure your body's physically prepared every time you actually go out and do throw. So I always, you know, you hear this from, you know, 100% of players and then you see, you know, 90% of players completely butcher their warmup. Um, so sometimes it's really just about like the, the mentality of placing a true focus on it. Continuing with our countdown at number three, we have one of my personal favorite episodes from this year. Episode 98, High Performance Nutrition Principles with Brian St. Pierre. In episode 98, 
Brian touches on the foundational principles of high-quality nutrition and elaborates on his journey as a dietitian, delivering life-changing, research-driven health and fitness coaching. All the way back, we talked about John Berardi's seven habits of highly effective nutritional programs. Um, and that was even something I think we used as a foundation for some of our original paperwork with athletes, yeah. and, you know, adapted it. Um, and I, I'm going to read the seven briefly prior to asking the questions. Number one, eat every two to three hours, no matter what. That should be five to eight meals per day. Number two, eat complete lean protein with each meal. Number three, eat fruits and or vegetables with each meal. Number four, ensure that your carbohydrate intake comes from fruits and veggies, the exception being workout and post-workout drinks. Um, number five, ensure that 25 to 35% of your energy intake comes from fat with it ideally split between saturates, monounsaturates and polyunsaturates. Number six, drink only non-calorie containing beverages, the best choices being water and green tea. Um, number seven, eat mostly whole foods. Um, and I'm curious, as you listen to that, like, What's your, what's your initial uh, uh, gut take on it? Is it there a lot of maybe, and it depends, or do you feel like that's still a really solid list to work from? I'd say it's, it's still a mostly solid list to yeah. work from, right? And of course, you know, as, as science moves on and as times change and we our understanding evolves, there are some things I would, I would yeah. certainly modify there. Yeah. Um, you know, like the, I'd probably flip number one and number seven for sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Whole foods would be the, the first thing we're focusing on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the exact number of meals you eat is we thought was much more important than we re mm -hmm. than it is today. Yeah. Um, right. There was some early research indicated, you know, you should be eating more frequently and it can yeah. provide X, Y, and Z benefits. Um, subsequent research hasn't necessarily borne that out. Yeah. No, so, but for athletes, you do need to eat on a regular basis uh, to make sure you're getting enough in overall to support your, your output, right? Athletes are much more active than even just like your general active exercise person. Mm -hmm. So you definitely need to eat regularly to support that, but you need to eat every three hours, every two to three hours. Um, no, it's probably a bit much, you know, three to five meals per day is probably solid for most athletes, but protein, yes. Fruits and colorful fruits and vegetables, yes. Um, the carbohydrate one for athletes, I would expand on that in particular, right? Like athletes, um, maybe not as much for baseball players, you know, it's not as carbohydrate demanding of a sport as say something like soccer, right. Or basketball where you're just moving consistently so much more. And it's about, um, you know, inter intermittent, powerful expressions, so there's less carbohydrate demand, but still just, they play so many games, um, in practice, there is a, a grind element there. And so I would still expand the carbohydrates there a little bit. Um, but for the most part, I'd say that's, you know, accurate enough. Um, getting in plenty of healthy fats. I would probably simplify some of the, the language there. Um, but on the whole, yes, you want to make sure you're getting in enough healthy fats to like support hormonal health and, and immune health, particularly like omega-3 fats so from fish and, and seafood. Um, those are the most important. And then, um, what was the sixth one again, Eric? Uh, Non-calorie non containing beverages. Yeah. I mean, I would say that's definitely true mm -hmm. for most people, you know, depending on their goals. But if you have a, uh, a young, young athlete is looking to gain weight, well, you know, high calorie drinks can be uh, beneficial in that regard. But on the whole, those hold up, you know, really well, considering that's probably 20 years old. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah that's, which, that's my take on it is it, it's shockingly good with some asterisk. Yeah, I mean, for something 20 years old, you know, to hold up that well, I mean, it's what it tells me is that the deep underlying principles like I've talked about or those fundamental skills, you know, for the most part, they, 
they don't change as we've come to understand them. Right, getting in protein, getting in fruits and vegetables, getting in adequate carbs for your activity, right, making sure you have enough healthy fats to support, you know, uh, immune health and hormonal health, drinking mostly calorie-free beverages and eating whole foods. Like, that's a damn good list uh, yeah. of, of targets right there. Um, and that's exactly what we try and teach athletes to do and all of our clients to do, whether you like to eat keto or plant-based or paleo. I mean, there are some things where we need to have conversations like, hey, you're a you know soccer player and you want to eat keto. Well, this might not work out so great. Uh, you know, that's, there's a conversation to be had there. But on the whole, we leverage those same kind of core principles um, and help any athlete do them and do them well, depending on their personal circumstances, values, and preferences. Bear with me now because we're almost to our number one spot. At number two, we have episode 90, Understanding Asymmetry with founder of PRI, Ron Ruska. In episode 90, Ron shares insights on the origins of PRI, how polyarticular chains impact movement, and what to do when we observe common postural adaptations in athletes. That's a cool segue into what I was, I was kind of brainstorming. I was, you know, I mentioned anatomy as being one of the big draws for me initially, but I think the other thing that was intriguing with respect to, you know, my initial PRI coursework and, and certainly, you know, a lot of the stuff that gets discussed among those who are familiar with the methodology is there was a relationship among the body systems. This was not just a, an orthopedic approach. Um, this is not conventional physical therapy, you know, therapeutic exercises alone. It was, I, mean, I expected to be attending a musculoskeletal conference. And instead I wound up with an education on everything from the sympathetic nervous system to the respiratory system and, yeah. and just about everything in between. So can you speak to these relationships and how PRI aims to impact this, you know, synergy across these systems to, you know, not just make people feel better, but also, you know, optimize performance. Well, I, and I, I will briefly because it's such a very broad mm -hmm. uh, concept. But, you know, Eric, I try really hard to get people to understand that those relationships, uh, that these uh, system relationships have such an impact on both on three systems. They interplay with around with and around three systems. That's your autonomic nervous system. Uh, a system that is hard to regulate some at times, the central nervous system, and this thing called the somatic nervous system, what we, what we actually perceive and feel. And that interplay is all cortical. I mean, it's all, you know, it's all cortical activity in the midbrain parts of our, of our brain, where perception, proprioception, I'll use the word pleasure, uh, physiology, psychology, and position or postural orientation all interconnect you know our cerebellum our balance center is right there it's all interconnected and all of our behavior and these determinants of the behavior that we you know of our behavior are are really performance that's how we perform and our performance is really not generated by what we like to do or not like to do or uh, by the genetics that we were given or whatever it might be it's really a combination and any slight change in any one of those determinants can have a pretty big impact, a major impact on one of them, or if not all of them. And so that was, that's a strong thing we have to always remember. Uh, we are better when we work with more people with different thought processes, scientific backgrounds, disciplinary mindedness, you know, we're, we're much better. And so, is our body our body works the same way it it's not really a philosophical discussion it's a scientific one and so the more we get out of programs wherever our interests are 
and is, we really need to be we need to be mindful of that because, as you said, the synergy or lack of is really dependent upon what we're missing or not, and how we pull those th- that that synergy together. And it really starts with how you feel about things and what you sense, and where are you with the space around you and with the space inside of you. And then the big one I always talk about, Eric, is how do you breathe and how do you how do you relate to your body with breathing? Uh, that's how we exist. Now, if you if you keep all that in mind, it's not that difficult. It, it's difficult when you make it that way. But if you really keep that all in mind, that everything is built around the first thing we did in life and the last thing we're going to do in life, and that is take a breath of air in and and let it out. That's that's how we all evolve with movement and function and every one of those systems i just went over all those determinants that i just went over are all influenced directly not philosophically not theoretically but scientifically even the chemistry of our blood is is directed by how and and the way we breathe so you know if there's one way we can look at this if we all got out of our programs with a very good clear understanding you know, a, a transparent understanding of what really makes us uh, uh, react and act the way we do, it would be a good, a really good understanding of the respiratory system. And, and that's kind of where I think um, I feel blessed that I had that. I had that uh, before I got into anything I did clinically, I had a strong belief and a strong appreciation for that and that's largely because of my mother. But that was a strong thing. That how do we breathe? How do we how do we manage? How do we use that respiratory system to get ahead of life? How do we get it? How do you know? I never smoked in my life. Um, you know, lungs are precious to me, and I treat them. I treat them as if they are my origin. And so, with that in mind, that's one of the reasons why exposure to PRI. It doesn't have to be difficult if you understand the underlying system in this anatomical machine we have is wired and driven by the breath that we take in and the, and the air we let out. I remember a, a comment from, I can't remember who said it, you know, kind of a, as, a, as a discussion point related to PRI. And they said, we'd rather breathe well and move like crap than we would move well and breathe like crap. It's, yeah. it's survival instinct. So, it's totally, yeah. It's so, totally I mean, let's. Let's let's get into the weeds. Um, when you when you speak, you know, kind of on an anatomical basis, to you know, what are the what are the positions that people get into from a respiratory standpoint that maybe have these musculoskeletal and you know sympathetic nervous system fallouts? What's what's the classic you know patterning that you're seeing that that you know folks who maybe haven't been exposed to PRI need to appreciate? Well, and, and again, uh, I'm I'm trying not to go into a into a deep hole here and all this, but the, the, the most likely thing, if you have never heard of postural restoration, the most likely thing that you'll observe are people that really are not alternating. Well, their arms don't swing. Uh, they look a little overextended. Uh, they look a little stiff and rigid. Uh, their, their ability to, uh, make different pitches with their voice uh, and express themselves. Uh, they may be even a little short of breath, but the the physical manifestations that you might see, Eric, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is that you'll see a shoulder on one side, usually the right, lower than the left. You'll see a you'll see a, a center of mass. The body actually will be more centered over a hip 
that's supportive of them, where the other hip is basically like a, a cane or a crutch. The, the left leg is usually the leg that you use to uh, position yourself around your, your right leg. And it's not because your right leg and your right arm are your dominant legs and arms. It's because of the way that we are actually physically put together to manage airflow and mass flow. And so you'll see humans usually walk with a little more um, rotation through the right hip than the left hip when they're put weight on it. Uh, they'll find themselves in a position where their, their, their left hip leg is more in front of their right leg when they stop. They'll be leaning over to the left a little bit as their right shoulder's down to balance themselves over their left, excuse me, their right ankle. Uh, their arm swing on the right side may not be moving back as well as much as it's moving forward, whereas the one on the left is moving back more than it's moving forward because they're trying really hard to get their upper body to, you know, coordinate itself over the floor that they're standing on the right more so than the left. Um, you'll see things with their mandibles. They'll shift to the left usually, and you'll see things with their eyes, and you'll see you'll see dominance throughout the entire system. That usually is more right-minded dominance. In other words, your left brain's driving it more than your right brain. Um, lots of those things, as you study the human, uh, the, the human, you know, genome, if you will. If you study it, you'll see it. It's pretty apparent when you know what to look for. And Eric and our institute, we look for that. And when we don't find it through tests and objective measurements, we know that we probably have somebody who's probably overutilized something, overcompensated, over overpositioned something, overdriven something, and it usually leads into the in these into these words called uh, dysautonomia or dyskinesis or dystonia or dysfunction in general. It's disharmony is really what it is. And when you get into that situation, you really have a person now that needs some assistance in regulating a pattern that they can't get out of. And, and that's what this institute really tries to do. And that is make people aware of the pattern they're in, make, make people aware that they need to kind of balance that pattern out and make, make sure they understand they will never be a symmetrical human. And no matter how hard you try, you weren't built that way. God didn't put you on this planet to, to be the same on both sides. But how you rest, how you breathe, and how you live with it is a gift. And, and balancing that out is fun, provides you know where you need to go to balance it out. And finally, our top episode, best of 2021, is episode 100, Current Concepts in Performance Training with Dan Pfaff. In episode 100, renowned track and field coach Dan Pfaff joins us to discuss current concepts in performance training, including elasticity versus stiffness and plyometrics, individualizing training regimes, managing workload and mitigating injury, and the value of strength for athletes. Your, your work's been recognized and respected by coaches across a number of disciplines, and I, I guess my, my question for you is, you know, I, I've learned a ton for you and I'm a baseball guy, right? And I, and I know there are people from the hockey community and, you know, the NFL, obviously the track and field world, all those things who, who feel the same way. So I'm curious, you know, what are the principles, you know, that, that buy you a seat at the table, regardless of the sporting question? Like I know, you know, for me personally, obviously the baseball realm, you know, it leads itself to NFL quarterbacks and tennis players and swimmers and some of these overhead athletes. Do you find that there are certain principles, and maybe it's the communication, you know, piece that we just discussed, that, that kind of do buy you a seat at that table, regardless of the sport in, in question? Well, I would say in review, uh, a lot of people communicate with me because I have 
vast networks in all sorts of realms. And a lot of times these networks operate parallel to sport, and sometimes they're miles away from sport, yet they have influence and implication in sport. So I say my ability to network and build networks would would be a foundational reason why sometimes I get a seat. Uh, I've always been an applied biomechanist of sorts. So I have pretty firm convictions on a technical model. Uh, granted, there's bandwidths to all models, but uh, if there's gross violations of the essential model, then injury risk, I think, go up and mechanical efficiencies go down. So I think a lot of people value my ability to see motion and understand motion and forces and why things might be happening or might not be happening. Um, and, and with that, of course, you, you have to be pretty good at kinesiology and probably motor behavior because you, you've got to change movement and, and habits and ingrained habits and how do you do that. So most of my work today is about return to play and return to perform or just global biomechanical efficiencies. And I think a lot of teams and organizations may have a cursory understanding of it, but uh, they don't know how to apply it or problem solve with those skills. Interesting. So, and I'd actually maybe build on that a little bit more. When we talk about like a, a cursory understanding, is it, is it that they, they maybe appreciate the different pieces, but not how they all fit together? Like, I mean, I guess, do you have, do you have an example of, of, of what you're getting out there? Yeah, well, I mean, ecological dynamics is the rage right now, right? So, you know, build constraints and let the athlete explore and experience and so on. But I, I think it's a little more nuanced than that. You know, like there's not 10,000 ways to hammer a nail. Mm -hmm. Now, the... The loop that you use with the hammer may have some variance or bandwidth, but nobody hammers a nail in a true vertical plane or a true horizontal plane or a true diagonal plane. There's a, a movement loop that they replicate. So I think everybody understands ecological dynamics to some degree, but then they take it to the nth degree, and in my opinion, they lose the plot. That's fascinating. And, and I think we talk about it in the context of the baseball pitch. No two are identical. It's, 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 it's a heavily specific motion, but the spin rate, the spin axis, the, uh, the actual forces generated from the ground up to the hand are going to be markedly, or not markedly, but subtly different um, between each pitch. Is the, is the takeaway from there, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of takeaways from there, is it this concept that, that unyielding specificity may not be necessary to, to protect our athletes, that we do need to, in our training, give them a, a, an element of adjustability? Or is it just that we need to appreciate that, you know, tissue loading is tissue loading, even when it comes in, in subtle variances? <clears throat> Again, I think there's a lot of layers to that. So, you know, are we exploring all stops in the force velocity curve? Are we looking at all types of, of strength and conditioning inputs, um, you know, the type of muscle activity that we're chasing. I think it's real easy to get biased, whether intentionally or unintentionally, with our prescriptions and our, our paradigms and our ideology. And, you know, I've 
I kind of use the analogy. I want a big, big toolbox with a lot of tools, and it's my job to figure out when to use tools in a timely manner at the appropriate moment. That's a that's a, a great point, and it actually kind of leads to my next question. And we had a we had a good exchange. Uh, I think it was back in January, and we were talking about in season training um, and its relationship to to injuries, and more specifically, muscle versus tendon injuries. And you you commented on how in the track and field community, some of the most significant injuries often happen. And this is, you know, somewhat counterintuitive during the taper period. So, you know, and, and not only that they're a unique type of injury. So can you maybe elaborate on those findings and, uh, and then maybe even attempt an explanation on the why behind them? Yeah. So a, a lot of this is uh, tied to research. Dr. Keith Barr's doing at Cal Davis on tendon remodeling and tendon research and what have you. And, it was interesting that he had some observations, you know, loose epidemiological case study collection, and it kind of mirrored what we were finding uh, in three different instances. I did pretty elaborate longitudinal studies, like over three to five year periods of, you know, when are injuries happening and how severe are they? And is there a pattern or trend to these? And what we were finding is some of the most severe and the most reoccurrent injuries were, were happening in season, you know, especially around championship time when people were, were tapering. And usually in the taper, what happens in our sport is people stop lifting or they go to maintenance lifting or, uh, you know, just select a few exercises for some rationale. Uh, while in the meantime, they upregulate field work, you know, so a lot more change in direction or sprinting or accelerating or block starts or what have you. And I think what we can infer from some of Barr's work is a lot of our classical everyday work uh, deals with connective tissues in a unique way where the weight room deals with those tissues, but also with the muscular system. So what we were finding is absolute strength in some of these uh, athletes was ignored or put on the back shelf, and the tendon work obviously elevated. And so this imbalance between muscular expression and tendon or ligament expression kind of got out of kilter. And it also circles to the concept of, you know, people have gone mad on this stiffness idea about getting uh, joints stiffer so that they can apply force in a shorter period of time. But uh, joint control has many variables. It's, you know, in my book, maybe 20 some variables that really control the movement about a joint. And, and there's also compliance part of the equation. So if we make something stiffer, what does that do to the compliance? Because in change in direction during amortization or yielding phase is compliant is, is imperative. So if we bias our training to stiffness or tendon ligament emphasis, we're ignoring a lot of the other cofactors that control joint movement, expression, and stability. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. 
We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.